Today we discuss the Great Reset. What is it? Who's promoting it? And why it is so dangerous ideologically and in practice. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction, and grace in our discourse. Happy Friday, everyone. I hope you've had a fantastic week so far and are looking forward to the weekend. We have a ton that I want to get into today, so I'm going to jump right in. I first want to start by talking about the election. I want to give you four thoughts on the election. It's been a wild week in Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada. Uh, Those are really the states that all of this comes down to. And it's a steep uphill climb for the Trump campaign to come back and to win this thing. Um, But they still believe that there is a path to victory. They outlined that yesterday in the press conference that their legal team held with Jenna Ellis, Rudy Giuliani, and Sidney Powell. And that was about an hour and 45 minutes long. It was actually very insightful in a lot of ways. The media didn't give it any credit at all. It wasn't perfect. Um, We'll get into a little bit of that. But I want to give sort of four overarching thoughts on where we're currently at after this week because it has been a revelatory week. We've learned a lot. So my first thought that I have is that I think a lot of people right now have a bit of election fatigue. It's been 17 days since election day. And I sense that there are a lot of people that feel like they are either tempted to just get angry at this whole process, dig their feet in. And uh, I see a lot of people starting to kind of lash out at each other on social media. And then I see other groups of people that are like, ah, just can't do it anymore. I'm turning off. I can't even pay attention to this. I just get sad or discouraged or whatever it might be. And the reality is neither of those are good routes to go. We've talked about this on the show. We desire balance. We desire a firm foundation on Jesus Christ where we understand that of the increase of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end. So we know that we can be led by the Prince of Peace regardless of these fleeting circumstances that are going on in the world around us. But the election fatigue is understandable because right now it's so hard to feel like, am I getting the right story? There's so much going on, and the media is no help at all, and it's just a chaotic time. So deciphering truth is a difficult challenge when it feels like all the dust is still in the air and none of it is settled. And we so badly desire truth. We desire for justice to be served. We desire to uh, see that anything that's been done in the dark would be brought to the light, but we don't get to control the timeline, which is difficult. And I think a lot of people right now, too, are waking up to the reality that the electoral process is indeed a process. It is not just a one-day event. So these things take time and patience as well. And so all that's really a a difficult, sobering reality in the middle of this season, on top of the fact that we also have new COVID lockdown measures. All of that on top of each other has created, I think, a season of fatigue for people. And it just goes back to reiterating the importance of keeping the main thing the main thing, which is that if you believe in Jesus Christ, and I hope and pray that you do, recognizing that he is the Prince of Peace, he's the one that can keep us content above all these other circumstances right now. I think of Peter walking on the water, even while the waves were swaying around him. And not until he looked to the waves to his right and left did he start to sink. When he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was walking toward him. And so I pray that that's our uh, reality in this season. Honestly, a lot of people ask me a lot, like, how do you stay really peaceful and joyful in the midst of studying politics every day? And my answer is simple. It is that. It is keeping the main thing the main thing, remembering that while what happens here on earth is so incredibly important, ultimately, Jesus is my priority. And the deep-settled confidence I have in him overrides any anxieties or um, potential worries or concerns about the earth that I live on. So my second observation of the election so far is this. The media has been deeply irresponsible. 
Honestly, I, I so long for a world in which investigative journalism becomes popular again, that people would stand up and that journalists would be more investigative and that they would actually seek the truth rather than just be activists. Um, there are a few wonderful gems that are still pursuing truth, that are uh, are are pursuing veritas regardless of party or political affiliation. And those people right now should be cherished because they're willing to seek the answers on a lot of these irregularities and discrepancies that we are missing out on knowing the full truth of. Because if you watch CNN, MSNBC, or even Fox, you're not getting the full picture right now. If a lot of these journalist institutions were honest, a lot of these corporate media outlets were honest, they'd say we'd much rather just get this over with and we'd much rather just have Trump concede and they would love to just move forward into the future and not have to deal with all this litigation, not have to deal with all of this because if a lot of them are honest, they were never hoping Trump would be reelected in the first place. And so the bummer with that is that Americans miss out on understanding the truth. You've got to do a lot of your own research. If you watch CNN for 15 minutes a night, you're not informed at all. It's just not accurate. Uh, they are an activist media organization. They are no longer a corporate media entity that you could actually trust to tell you the full story. And this was seen completely evident yesterday after the press conference when Rudy Giuliani laid out all this evidence and all these different sworn affidavits, again, under penalty of perjury. These are real legal documents, people sworn statements that if they are lying, they face penalty of perjury. That's a really, really big deal. These are not just people calling into a tip line. Even after that fact, these media pundits go, well, where's all the evidence? And Rudy looked at him like, I, I, I can't believe I'm being asked this. Guys, did you not just hear everything I said? What the media really wants is they want him to prove the evidence. They want him to actually prove that this is taking place. And here's a video that we got of somebody doing this. Or here's George Soros himself admitting it on camera, whatever it might be. The reality is proof does not come until the court of law. And they made that very clear. Here's our evidence. Here's what we're working with. We're still uncovering more. This is the beginning of our process here. We've been working for two weeks. That's not a long time. We've got some stuff together. Now we're in the building the case time frame. And then when we go to court, that's the time that we prove it. We're not just going to show you all our cards right now. That was their message. And yet that's not enough for the media. So what the media will try to do is they will try to spin it and say they have no evidence. When in reality, they do have evidence. You're asking them to prove the evidence, but you're misleading the American people by saying, well, they just have no evidence at all because we didn't see a video of George Soros admitting it or whatever it might be. And, uh, so the other big problem with this is that the media will say, well, they're zero for 30 in court cases. And look, they've been laughed out of every courtroom. That's also not accurate because the media is, uh, they are declining to tell people that not all the lawsuits that have been brought forward. In fact, majority of the lawsuits that have been brought forward so far that have not made it in court have not been from the Trump campaign. The Trump campaign is focusing on a very few select lawsuits, three or four lawsuits. They're not focusing on these 30 that have been into courts already and have been uh, unadmissible. That's not that Rudy Giuliani made that very clear yesterday. He said, we are focusing our efforts on a few different things. Those are actually private citizens that have brought those forward. Those are different organizations or entities or different uh, GOP groups and different precincts that we happily celebrate and we champion and push them on. But our legal team itself are focusing on a few key lawsuits. So the media is being deeply misleading when they're saying, oh, look, they've made no legal grounds. They're 0 and 30. Don't listen to the media when they tell you that because that's not true. The Trump legal process in as far as the courts go, is just getting started. They've made that clear, and they believe that they actually have a very clear path to victory. We'll have to see if that's the reality. But I just so wish we had a media institution that would be willing to actually help out in the investigative process and realize that if some of these claims were true, it would be a game changer. It would be history making, and it would be absolutely vital vital that we get to the bottom of what took place so we can make sure it never happens again. But instead, the media is very much more happy just playing sides and 
not digging t- for the truth at all. And I think that's really unfortunate. Here's the reality also. Um, the Democratic Party, if I were to guess, probably senses that the Trump legal team has more of a case than they are letting on to the American people. If Joe Biden really wasn't worried, he would say, yeah, fine, Trump can do his thing. I think it's silly, but he can do his thing. And this is his legal right to do so. So go for it, man. If Joe Biden wasn't worried, that's what he'd say. Instead, he says that this is a deeply uh, harmful threat to our democracy, which is ridiculous. It's not. It's legal. Trump campaign has the ability to do everything that's currently happening right now. None of it is illegal. None of it is uncommon. None of it's unconstitutional. If Trump doesn't win, he'll concede. It'll be the end of it. If he does win, then good. We understand that fraud was it or it was large enough that when it was revealed, it was necessary to overturn the results of the election. And then we move forward into a Trump second term. Joe Biden, though, not only is he saying it's a threat to our democracy, he's actually acting on that fear of this legal challenge from the Trump campaign by raising more money. So if you go to JoeBiden.com, you'll see that they've reinstated their legal defense fund. Joe and Kamala have started raising money again, telling their supporters that they're concerned that the Trump legal team, they could need money to actually fight them back. Why would you do that if you actually thought that they were just going to be laughed out of every courtroom? Why would Joe Biden and Kamala be asking their supporters for more money after they've already told all of America they've won if they were not concerned about the results of the election and the possibility of the Trump campaign having a real legal case here? So interesting stuff there. Of course, the media is not going to talk about it. All right. Third thought is this. While it would be irresponsible, like I just mentioned, for the media to just completely disregard this, to say you're threatening our democracy by even willing to ask about this election, while that's irresponsible, it's also irresponsible to, on the other side, say, well, this was complete fraudulent activity. I believe every word that Sidney Powell is saying. I believe everything that Rudy Giuliani is saying wholeheartedly. You don't need to show me any more proof of evidence. You don't need to prove it in a court of law. This is ridiculous. I am not accepting the results of this election no matter what happens. I don't need to see anything further. That's also irresponsible. Because the reality is, it's one thing to show the evidence that they did yesterday. They did indeed show evidence in the presentation of multiple affidavits, witness testimonials, alleging a fraudulent activity that many of these people saw firsthand. Uh, Sidney Powell released explosive claims about the Dominion voting system, Smartmatic, and the connection between the two companies, all these things. It's one thing to bring that forth through affidavits. It's another thing to prove it in a court of law, and that's what still has to happen before we can say, yep, they've made their case and they've sealed their case. It's been proven that this indeed did happen, and enough on a widespread systemic uh, way or scale in order to overturn the results of the election. So we have to hold that in balance. I see Sidney Powell as a very credible person. She has a track record of credibility. And also, these lawyers have a lot of skin in the game because if Sidney Powell is lying, if she's misleading the American public, it's a career ender. She will never step foot in a court of law again. She just won't. In fact, many people will be calling for her to be debarred and all these different things. So for her to step forward and to make the claims that she's made and say that she is fighting for the republic and the future of free and fair elections in this country, that claim tied with her explosive claims about the fraudulence activity that took place on behalf of these voting systems, Dominion, Smartmatic, those things cannot just be discounted. Because again, this person has built a track record of credibility and deserves to be uh, taken seriously. Does she deserve to be believed blindly? No. So you got to find that balance there. I am looking forward to, and I've held this position the entire time, show me the proof and we'll analyze the proof and we'll move forward. I'm not going to rush this legal team. There's a lot of conservatives that said, well, if you haven't showed it to me already, then it must not exist. That's also a silly proposition. That's really silly to believe that in two weeks that you expect them to lay out their entire legal case in front of your eyes before they've even gone to any serious court challenges yet. 
that's irresponsible. That's uh, that's your expectations are way too high. So you'll see people that are really pushing Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani to just lay out all their cards right now. That doesn't make sense. But it's also healthy to say at some point they're going to have to prove this in a court of law. And honestly, it's going to have to happen sooner rather than later because a lot of these states are in the process of certifying their votes. Fourth thought is this, and ultimately this is my concern. We know that voter fraud existed in this election. Very few people are doubting that. Now, the big question is, was it enough to overturn the results of the election? Was it on a widespread or systemic amount? Even a lot of left-wing media people have started to say, yeah, okay, we know there was fraud, but it wasn't enough to overturn the results of the election. My concern in all of this is, why is any fraud acceptable in the first place? We need to have a national conversation regardless of the outcome of this. Certainly, if the fraud is enough to be... uh, as explosive as Sydney and Rudy and Jenna are claiming to overturn the results of the election. Of course, then we'll have to have a national conversation to make sure that no fraudulent activity like this ever takes place again. But my concern is, let's say that there was fraudulent activity, but not enough to change the results of the election. Joe Biden ends up being the president on January 20th. And then half the country basically says, oh, well, okay, no need to change any elections, no need to change any voting reform or enact any voting reform, no need to touch this, we'll just go business as usual for the next four years and then do it again in four years. Why is any fraud acceptable to our country in the first place? There needs to be massive national conversations over the next year about how to radically transform our elections to ensure that they are not vulnerable to foreign actors or domestic actors with nefarious intentions, that they are not led astray by political biases of poll workers, that they are very transparent. I mean, it's amazing. We helped, the United States helped overthrow an election, uh, the results of an election in Ukraine in 2004, and the standards that they used that said, okay, this election merits our involvement to overturn the results. We don't even meet those standards today. It's really interesting. Go look up the Ukrainian elections of 2004 and the United States involvement in it and the various categories that the United States used to indicate that, okay, this election was fraudulent. Our elections in the United States from this election cycle do not meet the criteria of a free and fair election that we held other countries to. So, For us to not move forward and have radical change related to the way in which we conduct our elections would be ludicrous. Insanity, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. If we don't have politicians step up, and it's going to have to be Republicans because the Democrats are not going to do it. The Democrats think that asking for ID is some sort of racist um, act when you're asking for – or when people are voting. That's ridiculous. So um, you're not going to have the Democrats do it. Republicans are going to have to stand up. If you live in a region where you have a Republican legislator, a congressman or congresswoman, you need to call them and say, hey, I need you to step up in this next term and fight for voting reform, fight for voter ID laws, fight for signature verifications on any absentee ballots and for the eradication of widespread mail-in ballots. That It does not work. It's shown that it does not work. This was a catastrophe and we cannot do this again, regardless of the results ultimately, of this election. That's my prayer, is that we have this national conversation around voting reform and that real change is made so that when 2024 comes, regardless of who's running in the race, we can be sure that as Americans, we have a free and fair election. Final thing I'll say, guys, is that, like I mentioned, the media is really leading people astray and not helping anything right now, not helping give clarity to the season. I've had a lot of people reach out and say, hey, is there like a database where I can see all of the different affidavits that are currently out there, the evidence that's been laid out, the accusations, the allegations? Yes, there is. There's two websites that I want to forward you to. One is called protectthevote.com. Make sure you do protectthevote.com, not .net. It's .com. And then the other one is everylegalvote.com. 
So head to those two websites and you're going to see state by state all the legal challenges that are out currently. You'll see all the litigation that's currently present. You'll see all the allegations that have been brought forth. You'll see sort of the legal timeline in some of these different states, the recounts, the audits, what's taking place. Make sure you check out those two resources. That's the best way that you can actually ensure that you're getting an accurate story of what's taking place on the ground instead of CNN over and over and over again just telling you there's nothing to see here. Don't pay attention to it. They're getting laughed out of every courtroom and the Trump campaign doesn't stand a chance. Also, though, give Joe Biden money because we're afraid that they actually might stand a chance. So I'll leave the election there for now. Obviously, we'll continue to track with this as we head into the next week. From the sounds of it, it's going to be another interesting week. So (laughs) more to come. Now what I want to do for the rest of our episode together is I want to tell you about one of the most overlooked issues of our time, one of the most overlooked bad ideas of our time, and that is called the Great Reset. And before we talk about what this is or what it means, I actually want to take a brief detour and discuss conspiracy theories, my thoughts on conspiracy theories, the overall idea of them. Um, The reason I do this is because, like I said, the Great Reset has been overlooked. It's been overlooked because it's been labeled as a conspiracy theory. I do not like that term. The reason I do not like the term conspiracy theories is because I believe that that term is weaponized today by both sides of the political aisle to try to dismiss any ideas that they don't like. So, for example, what will happen is, A political movement or a belief system, a different group will say, I don't like that the other group is asking questions about this certain event that I view differently. So therefore, even if I don't have evidence to the contrary, I will say that their ideas are a conspiracy theory. That way they feel stupid or feel crazy for even asking questions about it. It's the the most ultimate form of gaslighting, essentially. I want you to feel crazy for even asking the questions that you're asking. And I will make you feel that way by labeling the questions you're asking as a sign that you're a conspiracy theorist. So I don't like that term because if something's not able to be proven either way, it can't be a conspiracy theory. Something can't be a conspiracy theory until it's been actually proven wrong and yet somebody still believes that they're not getting the full story. Okay, that's fine. Then we can start talking about, you know, that's a conspiracy theory. But so much of what's labeled a conspiracy theory today is actually just something that we don't know exactly what happened and we need to ask questions about. So a lot of recent ones have taken place. The origins of the Russian probe and the the Obamagate investigation as a whole and the, the, uh, the Logan Act supposed violations of General Michael Flynn, but the FBI actually ended up framing him and Hillary Clinton's involvement in order to set up the Trump campaign in 2016, 2017. All of these things were labeled conspiracy theories the last few years. Turns out that they were right. Turns out that Michael Flynn was innocent. Turns out that the uh, Obama administration was indeed spying on the Trump campaign. We know these things now. And that's those aren't the only conspiracy theories that people at once thought were crazy, but then ended up being proven right. Project Sunshine with the bombs at the end of World War II. Uh, Woodrow Wilson's wife stepping in and pseudo-governing because he had a stroke, and yet the United States didn't know about it. MK Ultra with the CIA testing hallucinogenic drugs on Americans and LSD and didn't tell Americans about it, and that was seen as a crazy kooky conspiracy. Turned out it actually happened. The Dalai Lama making a salary from the United States government, working in connection with the CIA when the CIA was funding the Tibetan resistance. I mean, all of these things at a time were thought, that is insane. And you can look up a lot of these. In fact, if you go in and you do some research on conspiracy theories that ended up being true, they will all prove the point that unless you can put up evidence to the contrary, stop calling things 
conspiracy theories because what you do is you create a culture where no one will ask healthy questions about situations when we actually should be asking questions. Again, I think journalism should be an institution where journalists are asking good, tough questions and digging to the bottom of things in order to figure out what's truly going on. And if you label anything you don't like as a conspiracy theory, and if you use that term very liberally, you'll create a culture where people don't feel comfortable asking questions because they don't want to be seen as that kooky person. And by the way, I want to pause here. This also does not mean that in the pursuit of truth, we have the freedom to be able to throw false accusations at people. So sometimes people that get really into topics that people traditionally label conspiracy theories, sometimes they will come to premature conclusions and falsely accuse people of things that they don't have evidence for. You can't do that either. The goal has to be seeking truth. Um, so my point is that we cannot, don't falsely prematurely uh, accuse someone of something when you don't have evidence to do it. At the same time, don't be afraid to ask questions. And don't be afraid to just not buy the media narrative right away that they're trying to sell us because we found throughout history that a lot of things that the media has initially tried to sell us or that the government has tried to sell us ended up being wrong. So it's not a bad thing to ask questions. It's also not okay to falsely accuse people without evidence. So those two things need to be held in balance here. Um, where does all that fit into the Great Reset? Well, here's the thing. The Great Reset has been labeled a conspiracy theory for the last few years until really the last 12 months when the founders of the movement, the Great Reset and the Agenda 2030 have really come out in the open and they've been very honest about their intentions and they've been very upfront about the desires that they have and the ways in which they would like to radically change the world. So I want to read you, we're going to get into now what exactly the Great Reset is, why it's important that we understand it, why it's so dangerous. There's a, a reporter with The Hill named Justin Haskins who summarizes this really well and then we're going to pick it apart a bit in a second. So he says, for decades, progressives have attempted to use climate change to justify liberal policy changes, but their latest attempt, a new proposal called the Great Reset, is the most ambitious and radical plan the world has seen in more than a generation. At a virtual meeting earlier in June hosted by the World Economic Forum, some of the planet's most powerful business leaders, government officials, and activists announced a proposal to, quote, reset the global economy. Instead of traditional capitalism, the high-profile group said the world should adopt more socialistic policies, such as wealth taxes, additional regulations, and massive Green New Deal-like government programs. Every country from the United States to China must participate, and every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed, wrote Klaus Schwab, the founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. In an article published on WEF's website, in short, we need a great reset of capitalism. Klaus Schwab's a name that's very important to do some research on. This man holds a great deal of global power that is often underestimated because he's not a daily part of our news cycle, yet he is someone that has more influence and power over the world than nearly anybody gives him credit for. Schwab also said that all aspects of our societies and economies must be revamped from education to social contracts and working conditions. A lot of buzzwords here that are deeply problematic if you really look into them. Joining Schwab at the WEF event was Prince Charles, one of the primary proponents of the Great Reset, Gino Gopinath, the chief um, economist, or economist at the International Monetary Fund, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, and CEOs and presidents of major international corporations such as Microsoft and BP. These major companies, they call them global stakeholders. That's the, world, the word that you'll hear them use to describe these major corporations that are buying into these large government takeovers programs um, in order to create a greener planet in the future and a sort of revamp of capitalism into more of a socialist society uh, model where there's a lot more government regulation on the abilities for businesses to produce and the major multinational corporations don't care as long as they get to set the rules. Activists from groups such as Greenpeace International, a variety of academics also attended the event or have expressed their support for the Great Reset. 
Although many details from the Great Reset won't be rolled out until the World Economic Forum meets in Davos in January 2021, so that's coming up in just over a month and a half, the general principles of the plan are clear. The world needs massive new government programs and far-reaching policies comparable to those offered by American socialists, such as Senator Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as they've described in the Green New Deal plan, etc., Or put another way, we need a form of socialism, a word the World Economic Forum has deliberately avoided using, all while calling for countless socialist and progressive plans. We need to design policies to align with investment in people and the environment. But above all, the longer-term perspective is about rebalancing economies, is what the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation, Sharon Burrow, said. One of the main themes of the June meeting was that the coronavirus pandemic has created an important, quote, opportunity for many of the World Economic Forum's members to enact their radical transformation of capitalism, which they acknowledge would likely not have been made possible without the pandemic. So Prince Charles quoted this. He said, we have a golden opportunity to see something good from this crisis. Its unprecedented shockwaves may well make people more receptive to big visions of change. It is an opportunity we have never had before and may never have again. So that's a little background, a little overview of what exactly this is. It's essentially this great globalist plan to take over the way in which we do the economic and social systems of our world currently in order to create a society that they believe is more equitable for the future. And you're going to hear a lot of these buzzwords like socially inclusive and sustainable, renewable, et cetera. That's essentially the goal here. And it takes global cooperation in order to make it happen. Let's get into some of the specifics of what that actually looks like played out. So a few things that are helpful to understand about this. This Great Reset is promoted by virtually all the major organizations, entities, and governments around the world, except for a few freedom-loving outliers like the United States under the current President Trump administration, actually. So the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the World Economic Forum, they're all involved. Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, Prince Charles, like I mentioned, et cetera, the European Union, the UN, um, all of these different major entities, organizations, and world leaders are fans of this great reset. Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, actually just made news last week because he came out in a video conference where he was giving a video presentation. And he announced that the COVID season has created an opportunity for a reset to revamp the way that we do our economics and our social structures in society. And so, again, they're not hiding this. Go to the World Economic Forum website. You can see all the details. You can read all of their plans and what it looks like for the 2030 agenda. We'll go over some of that as we continue on in this episode. But it's important to note this is out there. It's supported by major entities that rule the world in very powerful ways. So it's important to analyze. It's important to actually dig in and say, is it biblical? Is it something that we should be pursuing? It relies on globalism. So what is globalism? Well, I've talked about that a good deal on the show. Globalism, as a reminder, is the development of social, cultural, technological, or economic networks that transcend national boundaries, that require global cooperation in order to achieve global goals. So it's this idea of sort of foregoing national sovereignty in order to collectively, as a global collective, work together to achieve common goals. Now, that can sound very spiritual and kumbaya. Um, It's not biblical, and I'll explain why in a moment. Uh, It also requires countries with vastly different value systems to work together in a way to common goals. And we know you cannot cooperate toward common goals with countries that don't share your value system at least on some very fundamental core principles. If we don't agree on basic human rights, what that looks like, we cannot reach the same goals because our goals will be different inherently. China and the United States do not share the same goals, nor should they. Joe Biden, if he ends up being president, 
likely will share the same goals as China, um, which is why they have advocated so hard for him to be the president. It's why they are very excited about the prospect of him becoming president, possibly. Um, and that's why they've been so strongly opposed to Donald Trump is because Donald Trump stands very antithetical to Chinese values and what the Chinese Communist Party desires the world to look like. Meanwhile, um, Joe Biden does not. He is willing to operate within this global reset agenda. And he has been very forthright about that, very upfront about his cooperation with the World Health Organization and the UN and the World Economic Forum and the International Monetary Fund, all these different global entities. So globalism, a good way to understand globalism is the song Imagine by John Lennon. I've mentioned this in the show before in an episode a few months ago. I hate to burst people's bubbles that really, really like this song. I actually think it's one of the most dangerous songs written in the last hundred years. I know, unpopular opinion. But the reason I think that is because I want you to read the lyrics and Envision the world that John Lennon is dreaming of here, that millions and billions of people as they've listened to the song over the past uh, few decades have dreamed of. Listen to the, what the world they're envisioning looks like, John Lennon's envisioning. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. So verse one is a rebuke of religion. Verse two, imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. So it's again a rebuke of religion, but also a rebuke of national sovereignty. And remember, national sovereignty is so important because nation states protect values. Nation states define a region around the world where shared values are important, they're prioritized, and they're represented on the global stage. If you want to eradicate the world of nations in order to create a one-world society where we all cooperate, yet different chunks of the world have vastly different dreams of what the world needs to look like, that's a recipe for disaster. It's never worked in history, and it never will until finally Jesus Christ returns and establishes his perfect kingdom that's eternal on earth. So... Let's go to the chorus. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. So join us. Come into this global commune and we'll all live together in peace. You only have to give up all of your personal property rights, your individual freedoms. We have to give up a lot of the things that we value in order to create the social society that the globalists desire, um, which often involves giving up Judeo-Christian principles, beliefs on marriage, gender, etc. Okay, final verse here. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. So finally, it's a rebuke of private property, a, a rebuke of anything that you might own so that we live in a global collective. And this is inherently anti-biblical because the only collective that the Bible ever endorses is when you share your possessions and your resources with your church body. And even still, in those circumstances, people still owned homes. They still had places where they lived, and then they shared it with their church. And they put everything, um, a lot of their possessions and clothes and food together so that they could pair it together and help and serve one another. Um, so it's important to recognize the Bible never condones creating a collective with a society that does not honor God never endorses sharing a collective with Babylon. Instead, it's sharing a collective as church bodies within the Roman Empire or Babylon or whatever it might be. So it's important to recognize the difference there. Um, also, biblically, we've seen globalism played out in multiple um, instances. We know that the Assyrian Empire in history, Persian Empire, Roman Empire, um, have all pursued globalism. Babylon, though, is the most similar to the current Great Reset that we're witnessing because Babylon, rather than seeking perfection and global utopia through military conquest, they sought it, the earliest instance was through the Tower of Babel, where they actually believed that innovation and working together, cooperating, was going to create a global utopia where they would essentially reach heaven and they would experience heaven on earth. 
and yet they did it apart from the will of God. So historical globalization embodied in the construction of the Tower of Babel in the 21st century BCE, where rather than filling the earth as God commanded in Genesis 9-1, mankind rebelled, deciding to centralize in one city and not be scattered over the earth. That's Genesis 11-4. This construction effort was spearheaded by Noah's great-grandson, King Nimrod, whose name means rebel. So what did God do? As the Tower of Babel was being constructed, the global population working as one with innovation and a cooperative spirit in order to achieve these goals, to experience a perfection of humankind, guess what God did? He scattered them, destroyed their efforts, confused their languages, pushing people to the ends of the world in Genesis 11, 8 and 9. Grouped people together by dialect and settled in other places other than in Babylon. So it's really important to recognize one of the first instances in just the 11th chapter of the Bible was a rebuke of globalism when globalism was not centered on Christ. Today, that's exactly what we see. We are not seeing a rise of the Roman Empire by military conquest. The globalists today do not want to take over the world with military power. They want to take over the world in the name of global innovation, societal advancement, technological advancement, creating a better version of humanity through science and perfecting our climate. They have a desire to experience perfection here on earth through human advancement. It's exactly what Babylon experienced. It's exactly what the Tower of Babel was. It wasn't just so they could rule the world by demolishing all the other people groups. It was actually a global cooperative effort in order to create this global society. And God had no part in it. Because again, any movement to create cooperation besides the will of God on any values that are not centered upon the kingdom of God and his definition of righteousness, truth, peace, joy, etc., is something that God will completely rebuke. And he does it time and time again. He also does it in Revelation. We see at the end of times, the Antichrist joining together a global government that is based upon an Antichrist ideal, something that sounds really enticing, very um, seductive in nature because it sounds like peace. It sounds like global cooperation. Yet at the end of the day, if you examine the motives closely, you see that that government is actually centered upon Antichrist ideals. We know that that will come one day. And we have different beliefs on when that happens and what exactly it looks like and all those things. But Revelation, John's Revelation in, in the book of Revelation describes that accurately. So we can disagree on the times that it comes and all those things, but we all agree that the Bible from the start, the first book to the last book, rebukes any global government that is based upon values that are not biblical in nature, just like the Great Reset has, rebu or has promoted. The Great Reset has promoted a social society that believes that man is God instead of God being God and recognizing ultimately the Godhead over our world. Instead, it believes that humankind can perfect itself in our next stage of evolution. And that's where um, I, I want to lead to who these people are that are promoting this uh, idea of the Great Reset. These are transhumanists. These are people that believe in Darwinism, in evolution, and they believe that throughout history we've been evolving naturally, but now it's our turn through societal advancement and technological advancement to take the next step, to take our own next step, to force the next step in our humankind evolution. We can perfect humanity now with the resources that we have acquired and that we have built. It's a very Babylonian mindset, and it's dangerous, and it's destructive, and yet you'll see a lot of people buy into this and actually support this as a good thing. Even some progressive Christians that believe it's a good thing because they believe that pursuing climate health is more important than pursuing righteousness and pursuing uh, the great commandment or the great commission. Honestly, that's, that's how a lot of Christians have been deceived these days. 
And so it doesn't mean we disregard our climate. Of course not. But it does mean people's salvations and the eternal reality of people's souls are more important to the Christian or should be than uh, making sure that we're cutting our carbon emissions. But to a lot of Christians, they've equated those two. So these are the Bill Gates types. These are the Craig Venter types. These are these big tech giants and big multinational corporation CEOs that genuinely believe that it's up to them to play God. And because of this, you'll see a lot of really dangerous belief systems emerge out of this. You'll see people really start to embrace eugenics or population control. We know that Bill Gates has been very upfront about his beliefs on population control. He's been very upfront about his beliefs that there comes a point in life where you're you're essentially not worth living anymore. You cost too much to society. It's a very Chinese Communist Party style um, utilitarian sort of sort of uh, belief about the world and about aging and when does your body stop to have any value to the world around you? It's it's a really dangerous mindset and a very interesting belief system. It also promotes very dangerous beliefs about birth and birth defects and disabilities. So you'll see in countries like Iceland, for example, that are very very progressive, where Iceland they give themselves a pat on the back and they pride themselves on the fact that there are almost no Down syndrome babies born every year now in Iceland. They say that they've eradicated Down syndrome. Now, here's the reality. They have not eradicated Down syndrome. What's happening is that any babies conceived with Down syndrome, they're encouraging the mothers to kill their children, to abort the child. And then they pride themselves as a society that there's not Down syndrome present in society. I cannot think of anything more sick. I cannot think of anything more demonic than that than a society giving themselves a pat on the back, than a nation giving themselves a pat on the back because last year they only had two Down syndrome kids born because the rest of them were aborted. That was Hitler's plan, by the way. That was Hitler's desire was to do exactly what Iceland's doing. And the crazy thing is many other countries around the world are applauding Iceland as well. That's the world that they want to create, and it's heartbreaking. And we should have no part in this. We should stand against this with everything we have. And yet again, many people are duped into believing that this is somehow a positive thing. And it almost makes you cry just even thinking the fact that they would even call Down syndrome um, an undesirable disability like this. I mean, we have so much as a society to learn from kids that have Downs, um, honestly. I mean, they have a joy that is rare for most people. And so I think that that's something that we should absolutely admire and celebrate in society, um, not even consider uh, calling anything like undesirable. So all of these things to c- combine to create the transhumanist dream for society, a more perfect humanity that only takes place by humans playing God. Some of the specifics of what the Great Reset is calling for can be found in the 2030 Agenda. So the 2030 Agenda is essentially what the world should look like in 2030 if the Great Reset gets to happen as planned with global cooperation. So free housing, free education, free healthcare, the expansion of human rights as, a, as the language, so calling more and more things human rights like housing, education, healthcare, and the provision of those rights. So the providing of those rights by these multinational corporation paired with government partnerships to provide these rights for people. So essentially, the government becomes God, the global society, the Great Reset Society, the World Economic Forum, these institutions that were so nice to enact this world for us, those are the people that then become God and therefore they're our, our key provider. Here are eight predictions for 2030 that the Great Reset has predicted on their website. Again, this is the World Economic Forum, a global power that they're not, they're not a fringe conspiracy theory group. This is a global power. This is what they've called for in 2030. Here are eight predictions. Number one, you can find these on their website. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. So everything you have in 2030, you'll rent and it will be delivered to you by drone. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Number two, the U.S. will not be the world's leading superpower. 
They have said that on their website. They desire for the U.S. to not be the world's superpower. They believe that a handful of countries will dominate the world. Three, you won't die waiting for an organ donor. That sounds nice. We won't transplant organs. We'll just print new ones instead. Okay, whoa, hold on a second. You're going to print new organs? Consider all the ethical questions, the bioethical questions that go into that being the case. And that's a conversation for another time, but there's a lot of ethical questions of how do they have to do that? What about all the stem cell research that has to take place in order to create a world in which that's the case? You're really playing God at that point. Um, Innovation is great. Innovation, when it leads to you playing God, can be problematic, so that's a question that we'd have to answer. Number four, you'll eat much less meat. It'll be considered an occasional treat, not a staple, for the good of our environment and for your health. All I have to say to that is no thank you. I will be eating cheeseburgers and sushi in 2030, just like I am today. That will not be changing. If you want to be vegan, you can do that. Power to you. Uh, And I hope and pray that you'll offer me the same respect when I'm not vegan, but that's a crazy assertion that the entire world will be eating much less meat and it'll be seen as an occasional treat and not a staple for the good of the environment. Number five, a billion people will be displaced by climate change. This will push for more. This will cause the society to push for more immigration and more refugees. Now, again, that can sound really nice, but go back to my immigration episode from a few weeks before the election. These things have to have limits and they have to have order around them. The ultimate dream on behalf of the globalists is to create a society in which at the end of the day, the borders are gone. The open borders are welcomed into society. We're one global society. And if you don't like it, we'll kind of force you into submission. But we do it because we love you and we care about you and we know what's better for you. So let's get rid of uh, borders. We'll do that by scaring you into submission with climate change. Number six, polluters will have to pay to emit carbon dioxide. There will be a global price on carbon in order to make fossil fuels history. So that is the goal, complete renewables. I've talked about that in my environmental episode. You can go back to the religion of radical environmentalism to hear why 100% renewables is an awful idea and is a globalist utopian dream that should never come to fruition because it will actually cause way more destruction than help anything. Number seven, we will be focused on space survival, not just travel. So the ultimate goal will be a sort of uh, travel in which we see space as a frontier that we could actually colonize and live in space and survive there. Interesting play. That's a whole other conversation about traveling to Mars and what are the ethics behind that and the ethics of colonizing on other planets. There's a lot of questions that arise from that too. Conversation for another time. And then number eight, Western values will be pushed to the breaking point. Again, this is where we come back to, you cannot create a globalist utopia in a world where there are many other value systems different than yours that you would then be asked to uh, cooperate in a way that would require you to give up your values. Again, the great... Reset makes it very clear on their website that they desire intersectionality to be a major component of their Great Reset agenda in 2030. Intersectionality, where we are judged by, at least partially, our skin color, our gender, our sexuality, these different things. They actually see that as a positive thing, where you get different social standing based upon your identity marker. And ultimately, we are going to strive for affirmative action policies to create the Great Reset. That is the dream that they have in mind. And that would require millions and millions, tens and hundreds of millions of people around the world that actually believe in Judeo-Christian values to essentially give up their belief systems, give up their beliefs about marriage, gender, about intersectionality, uh, about their beliefs that actually all men and women should be judged equally based upon the content of their character, not the content of their character, not their color of their skin or their gender. It would require this plan for people to give up that as a priority in order to succumb and submit to this globalist agenda. No, thank you. I want no part in that. 
And the Christian should have no part or desire to take part in this great reset agenda that causes you to give up some of these kingdom of God fundamental principles found throughout scripture in order to buy into this plan. So those are the eight pieces of their dream for 2030. Just 10 years from now, how are they going to do it? How would they actually convince the world to go through what it takes to create that sort of great reset society that they have in mind? Now, this is what they're intentionally vague on. They're vague on this because if they were to be honest about how this happens, I don't know that many people around the world would truly buy into it. And that's how, what, those are the ideas we should always be most weary of. We should be most weary of the ideas that are very promising in result, in outcome, but are intentionally vague in how you get to that outcome. That's really, really dangerous. If you really want to test someone, ask, okay, well, how? Or how do you pay for it? Or what does it actually require? What do we sacrifice to make it happen? Because where there's no vision, the people perish. If the great globalists are not giving us a vision for how they want to create their utopia and what it's going to cost you in order to make it happen, they're lying to you intentionally. This is why I'd always prefer leaders that are callous with the truth rather than polished with the lies. The World Economic Forum is a polished with lies sort of entity. They know exactly what it'll cost you. They're not going to tell you. There are a few keys from history that we can look to. Because again, nothing's new under the sun. There's a few keys from history that we can look to that actually outline pretty clearly the steps that they are taking in order to create this great reset. There was a Soviet defector named Yuri Bezmenov who in 1984, after he had defected the United States, he shared in an interview that went viral for the time uh, about how the Soviet communists had sought to ideologically subvert the world, that their goal was not military conquest, but ideological conquest, that if they could trick the world into uh, buying into their communist utopian dream, that they could actually conquer the world through those means. And there, we know that actually uh, Khrushchev famously said that we will take over the United States without firing a single shot. And that's exactly what he meant. So Yuri Bezmenov came to the United States and he shared in an interview about 25 minutes long. I'll post it actually in my show notes this week so you can watch the full video if you'd like. He shared four ways in which the communist dream subverts the ways and and the values of the United States and the Western democracies as a whole. So he shares these four steps to a totalitarian takeover in society. And we see all four of these steps being present in the Great Reset and what they're trying to do currently. The first is demoralization. So demoralization is teaching the next generation to hate the values that they were raised with. So to stand opposed to the values that are traditional in the culture. So we see that, we've seen that through the, since the 70s and the 60s, honestly. So Even Yuri Bezmenov, when he was talking in the 80s, he's since passed, but he shared about how that was something he was already seeing taking place in society was this demoralization where all of the morals and values that the United States had once held dear were starting to be questioned. The rise of moral relativism was rising to the surface, which is a fundamental principle to the modern or actually the postmodern Marxists and socialists today, this idea of, of morals being relative and some people are more equal than other people. That is something that is promoted by the modern uh, generation today, and it's something that's taught in the schools and the education system. So demoralization has been happening, and it's happening today at a rapid pace. We are teaching the next generation, sadly, in our schools and academia to hate the values they were raised with, to stand opposed to it. That's why you see these kids that are loving and charming and wonderful people and 
Um, they don't act like victims and then they head off to college, these liberal arts schools, and they come back with a gender studies degree and they're depressed. They hate the world around them. They believe that they're the victim of the oppressive patriarchy. They've been brainwashed into believing that we live in a deeply flawed society and the best way to heal it is through intersectionality and fully buying into something like a radical Green New Deal agenda. Second is destabilization. So, once we've demoralized a nation, you can destabilize them by implementing changes that reflect the changing values. So once you've demoralized the nation into a more morally relative society, then you create a society in which, and you put people in positions of power, for example, that believe that uh, the demoralization was a good thing. So uh, you put the people that were brainwashed in academia, you then put them in positions of power. You give them authority in different realms. You allow them to actually start to create and chip away at society, not just ideologically, but actually within the structures of society to destabilize it. Third, you have to have a crisis, a massive crisis that creates change. Again, these are not my ideas. This was Yuri Bezmenov. He shared that this was sort of the playbook in many communist countries in the 20th century. And I believe that we're seeing a similar thing today on behalf of organizations like the World Economic Forum. The crisis is a massive crisis that finally requires that change. So we go all in as a society and we finally say, okay, we can't do it anymore. We're willing to buy in. We're willing to sacrifice more because we are afraid of something or we believe that there's a pressing challenge we need to meet. That's exactly what's happened in this COVID season. They've scared the world with COVID. We've been horrified into staying home for a virus that has a 99.96 survival rate for anybody that's healthy and under 60. Um, and they have essentially horrified the population globally into submission for a disease that is not the Spanish flu. And Americans and people around the world have just bought into it, have just let it happen. And the, the response coming out of the fear is, trust us with your lives, trust us with the future. This has been an opportunity for a great reset. Now is the time to seize on these new goals. Now's the time to create this new society. If only you trust us, your climate fears and your COVID fears will be satisfied. Now, here's something interesting. A lot of people over the last five, six years have been trying to like forward globalism through scaring people about the climate. So the world is ending and the ice caps are melting and the polar bears are dying. And if we don't act now, we're only going to have 12 years left on the planet. The reality is though, human nature is somewhat selfish. And what these people have found is that scaring people with the climate is not as effective as scaring them with their own personal health. If you can tell them that the world is falling apart People won't be as alarmed into action naturally as if you were to say your life is falling apart and you are at immediate danger from this virus. So that's why they've kind of shifted their message from the climate to COVID in this season. And that's why they keep saying COVID has been a great opportunity. I don't know if they mean to do that in motives. I can't judge motives. I can only judge results and what we're seeing here. And this is what we're seeing. This is the language that they're using around this global crisis that we're facing. So the fourth step is normalization or the new normal. So now that we have demoralized a society, we've destabilized it by putting people that were demoralized in positions of power to justify or to direct society, then we have a crisis that finally uh, gives way to this new normal, the Great Reset, the Agenda 2030, the world we've always wanted to create. Now it's time. So we can't go back after the crisis. Here's our next step in human advancement. Come along for the journey with us. That is the Great Reset. 
For now, I'm going to leave that there. As always, if you've enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to my email list on my website at refiningpoliticsandculture.com so you can get the show notes from this episode and Tuesday's episode sent to you as well as a newsletter this week. Really exciting stuff there. Some really fun new developments in refining politics and culture I'm excited to tell you about on that newsletter. Also, if you have not yet, please leave me a positive review on Apple. That helps more than you know. Finally, uh, if you feel led or if you'd like to donate to the show, you can do that on my website at refiningpoliticsandculture.com as well. That helps the show grow tremendously. I really appreciate all of your support. It's been an honor to talk to you all today. Cannot wait to speak with you next week. Have a great weekend. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert.